0: Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. Devin, what have you been up to, man?
1: Oh, this and that. Um, I've been dealing with the rain over here in Chicago. Uh, we've flooding. been getting lots of rain, lots of flooding. Um, actually been out shooting some of the uh, tornado damage uh, around the southern Chicago land where we had that, uh, lots of flooding and tornadoes uh, for some news coverage. A tornado came through Chicago? I don't think it was a tornado. Everyone keeps calling it a tornado. I think it was massive flooding, but the, the people keep getting confused about it and keep calling it a tornado. And I'm like, oh, I think it was just lots of wind and some water, but all right. So. huh? You'll Because my... everyone, oh, everyone gets confused by the whole, like, tornado warning, like, tornado alert. Like, you know, they, they don't know what means what. So anytime they see tornado in the headline of a story, they instantly just assume, oh my gosh, there was a tornado.
0: <laughs> so. Yeah, the whole tornado watch and tornado warning thing—it can always yeah, be. A you don't
1: get any of that with earthquakes because earthquakes are just it happened. There it's is just no earthquake How much alert. of an earthquake did you get? <laughs> There's no warning of an earthquake, <laughs> so
0: everyone's not confused when that shows up. On my side, I've been trying to balance freaking stabilizer here, and I've got this right here in the corner. This is that Cam TV unit I was uh, showing earlier. You know how many bolts and screws and things you have to adjust on this guy? Man. Did you get
1: the kind with the
0: toolless quick-release kind of thing going on? Uh, this does have some tool bits to it. Like, uh, if you look right here, it does have these uh, thumb screws to bring the unit up and down. And it's supposed mm-hmm. to kind of keep it in place with this uh, shield that goes over the front, but it doesn't fit over the top of all lenses. Uh, balancing it requires... You Know a couple of screws here, and then there's you, there's like little measurements down here that you have to use uh-huh. in order to slide it back and forth. And honestly, I've kind of over the last couple of years relied on someone else to do this for me, so this is my very first foray into this thing. So it's it's different, it's a lot more work than I was expecting. Yeah, it's not just something you've been
1: having you can... fun, right? Ah. You've been having fun, have oh, you messed man. at all with uh changing profiles and whatnot? Oh, yeah, <laughs> so there's a three profile setting on there, and like sometimes
0: if you if you don't hit the button three times and let it change over. It kind of does some weird stuff. I haven't even <laughs> dove into the whole like software issue, where you can set different areas, you know, depending on whether you, like apparently, if you work in one country, you work in another country, it can change mm-hmm. magnetically the way the the sensors detect the position of the stabilizer. <laughs> it's like what? That's a thing? Like, oh man, really?
1: Yep. Uh, putting putting an engineering degree to use right there is what it's doing. Yeah, no joke, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, so there'll be more
0: on that once I finally get it balanced. I'm gonna stick with primes, I think, on this guy instead of going with zooms. Mm-hmm. Just because that's another factor of a moving part. It's so because it gets to get screwed up yep. when you go to zooms. Exactly.
1: and so- It's not, it's not, even a glide cam because there's, you're somewhat like physically touching it has a little bit of leeway. Like I remember I can adjust the zoom on my mini glide cam and I could still run with it without having to like rebalance it necessarily. Just I need to be mindful that it wants to tilt forward and kind of adjust for it. But so it's interesting because, everyone used to complain about those were difficult to set up and heavy and everything else. And then as soon as this came out, everyone's like, Oh, this is the answer. No. And then it's like so much work.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I used to have a, I think it was a V 16 glide cam, the full vest with Mm -hmm. the arm and everything. And the worst thing you had to do there was like, you know, tension your springs. You have to do the fall test where you tilt it sideways, let it go and and see how long it drifts to come straight again. And those settings are pretty easy to duplicate over and over again. I mean, it's a couple Mm of screws. The plate on there had like four screws that you moved around. There and they were thumb screws, so you didn't yeah. have to do any work. This man, there's like I think there's 23 <laughs> screws total, and you have to like do one at a time, you know, balance it this way. Okay, got that, you know, okay, now do this. Oh, that affected this other, you know, uh, angle, so now I'm gonna have to tweak this a little bit more. And like they actually have to have numbers on there, so you can be like, okay, I write this number down because that's where I got it to <laughs> on the scale, and that seems to work with this particular camera and body.
1: And oh. and and do you, you remember the uh, the images coming out of NAB of like basically exoskeleton arms to help people carry the load of like a red epic and everything else in those gimbals it looks ridiculous i mean not that like how you look is important necessarily when you're trying to get the shot but it just looks like a whole lot of time and effort for um i don't know for something that i don't think is uh necessary most of the time
0: yeah i was um actually ChemTV Chem makes one of those as well, and I was looking at it on their site. It's uh, <laughs> it's two... It's uh, for those of you not familiar with it, and I, I'm trying to find the picture right now, and it's not coming up right away, but it's basically just two uh, spring-loaded arm stabilizers like you'd see on a normal vest, and they come out of either side of you like Dr. Octagon or whatever, <laughs> and you, you have little holes on either side, and you put your handles for your uh, three-axis gimbal on that, and then that's supposed to give you the arm support you need in order to continually operate and hold that up. It's cooler looking than the backpack with the weird rope coming over your head, but it's still a little bit wacky. I don't know. Uh, Man, this whole thing, I'm... (sighs) (laughs) I'm saving a little bit of money going to my own stabilizer as opposed to paying someone to, you know, come out every time. But I think I'm going to, I might stick with that just because it's so much work to set up and to get ready Mm -hmm. to go all for one shot. And then, you know, you're you're done with it. You get your shot. Now you're switching over and doing all this other stuff. And then when you go back to it again, unless you have a camera that's dedicated just to your gimbal, you know, you're you're going to screw it up and you're going to have to take it off and do something else. And I'm not going to use a gimbal for every freaking shot. You have like a couple of cream shots where you're like, Oh man, I just want to follow this guy into a room and like turn mm-hmm. and follow him a little bit more. And I need to go up some stairs and stuff. And you set up all that stuff just to, you know, tear it back down again and do something else. So
1: I don't know. Also, you know, well, where gimbals work really great is with, uh, with GoPros because they're always the same weight. And when you mount them, they're always in the same spot. So when you're doing quadcopters or some people do handheld stuff for skateboard videos or something like that, the only good gimbal experience I've had is with GoPro gimbals. Cause you really just turn them on, pop in the camera, and go. So,
0: Well, that's where that DJI unit, um, I don't know if you saw it, it's shaped like kind of an eyeball, it's a circular deal, and it's basically, they sell a pistol grip for the gimbal that goes underneath of the DJI uh, Phantom, and so the pistol grip basically gives you a 3-axis gimbal in your hand, and now with that, because they already know the exact mass shape and everything else of the camera that's always going to be on there. The programming for it can be fine tuned to the umpth degree before they even send it out to you. So then there's no like, Oh wait, I didn't, you know, set this at the right spot on my frame or, you Mm know, my GoPro has a little, some crap on the back of it. And so it's not quite sitting correctly. Now with that, you Mm -hmm. can program it and have it ready to roll. Maybe that's the way to go. If I just want to have a gimbal around the house, I don't know. I'm going to still keep messing with this guy. It's not getting (laughs) thrown out, but, uh, Uh, Man, I did not realize how many freaking screws there are to these gimbal units. On that note, time time for the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. First thing we got up here on the news is actually the Zoom F8. I talked about this last episode, but I want to dig into it a little bit deeper. I started yesterday that podcast at 8 in, or 5 in the morning actually, so I was a little bit loopy, but now I've had time to watch all the promo videos get a feel for it, discuss it with Devin pre-show, and now we kind of want to dig into this a little bit deeper. So first, let's go over the specs here. Um, And I did mention in the show notes, and you can check that out there, that uh, it does have eight inputs. Um, We were kind of trying to figure out what the hell is going on with the eight inputs because it looks like the same shot of four XLR uh, tip ring sleeve inputs on either side. So we assumed that it was just on one side and there were controls on the other. But it turns out... There are four on one side and four on the opposite side. So if you use this in the field, you're going to have... Eight wires total coming out of this, if you're using all eight inputs, uh, four on either side. And you're going to have to have some kind of special bag or something like that in order to accommodate that sort of interface into the field recorder. They do have dedicated knobs for everything, so you can control volume on all of those inputs. Uh, This also has a full-color screen. Uh, Looks like there are some battery clips that you can change out on this guy. But with all the features and Bluetooth in this,
1: battery life seems a little bit iffy. Devin, what do you think about the Zoom F8? I think battery life will be just as bad as the Zoom H4n and everything else that came after it. I mean, six AA batteries to run eight inputs. um, I'm assuming that because it's like, a big deal that they've got eight xlr inputs that phantom power is available for all eight tracks yes it is it's so if you start running stuff like that i could imagine uh six eight double a batteries lasting you maybe half an hour um i mean it, it's good to see that they're you know at least this time having a dedicated dc adapter um because for me it's a uh, I always was like really a mini USB cable to keep my h4n like on external power and stuff like that there's or um or other what was it the d task cam dr60 also yeah. I think it uses a mini USB for power yeah I'm powering and that so- up
0: right now with a USB <laughs> plug it's kind of obnoxious I wish I had a barrel plug so I could just have like six right. barrel plugs to adapt well, to. well and-
1: of all the connectors, like micro USB has clips to it. Even though it's not super secure, it has clips. The mini USBs have nothing. It's so easy to plug and unplug mini USB. So that always scares me if I'm carrying it uh, on my shoulder and I'm out in the field. But I like the concept of having two um SD slots and that they're XC as well. So you can put in the bigger cards this time and not worry about compatibility. So, and I know that that semi time code is really important for some people, but I feel like if you're on a job that requires empty time code, you're probably using bigger or better gear than this.
0: Well, I don't know. Now, for that sort of thing, like I used to shoot a lot with the uh, Fostex FR2, uh, I think, uh, which is a fairly robust. Uh, two track recorder and that unit you know we plugged it in all the time to get time code stamps because it makes it so much easier in sync you drop it into post and now you have time code or um the other thing we were using if they didn't have a sync port was a um, uh, broadcast waveform and as long mm-hmm. as you clock everything ahead of time you can basically sort by file and the files will line up and so time code that is really helpful but where i wanted to jump in on this is actually the eight tracks we were talking about this pre-show and this thing's going to be about a thousand dollars right out of the shoot. so that a fairly substantial investment, and it's about double the price of the Tascam DR680, which the Mark II version I believe is five ninety nine. The Mark One version of that is four twenty eight, and that has four tracks of recording. When you get to eight tracks of recording, uh, you know, wouldn't you want to move to like a studio or an environment where you actually had a dedicated recording unit for that, Devin?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess I could see sometimes when Uh, If you're at a, say you're a small time band or something like that, and you want to record live performances to do a live mix, uh, which isn't how a lot of bands, you know, distribute their music, they usually go into a studio and do it that way. But I guess if you wanted that live atmosphere, then I could see you from your soundboard breaking it out into uh, eight stems and then recording it into this. But it's one of those that I don't know, like, I feel like usually then you want the full kit. Either you want uh, big hardware and you want to be in a space where this all makes sense or you're going to bring a laptop so you can interface with it. I don't know. I I feel like they're trying to fill a gap in the middle in between like, I need a portable audio recorder and I need a recording studio. And I just don't think a lot of people are asking for that because the environment is so much important in both of those situations where portability, I really need something small that fits in my hand that I can rely on, and the battery lasts forever. And then on the other hand, in a studio, I need a quiet place. I need a place where I can control a lot of the acoustics. So this thing in the middle, I don't know. Maybe they know something we don't about uh, what the market wants. But I really don't see people clamoring for this other than like, oh, more tracks. It's like more megapixels, you know? Well, the times I've had to record a big discussion, uh, you know,
0: where you have like a a panel group and you have eight or nine people. I generally bring in a USB device, like an adapter device. I have a Tascam. I think it's a 228 or something like that, and it has eight dedicated XLR inputs. Plus, it has eight AD optical, so you can bring in another uh, eight tracks if you want to. So, sixteen tracks total. And that is exactly why I use that is when I have a bunch of mics that I'm interfacing with, and I have a bunch of different people speaking all over an auditorium or something like that. You bring it in, and you're not going to bring a field court recorder in for that. You're going to bring your laptop in because you want to make sure you. You get everything. You want to have all the stuff there. I guess, all the control. Yeah, exactly. All the <laughs> control and be able to, you know, tweak the knobs and have everything. I mean, I guess this does have knobs, but it's battery powered. So you're going to bring this in, barrel, connect it, and then bring all your cords to that and record it in the unit. And then the other thing that's a little silly to me is the the uh, Bluetooth interface for this. It allows you to control volume of different tracks and channels via a app for your iPad. So... What? Okay, so you're going to waste more juice on this thing running Bluetooth to an iPad app that you're, you're carrying this field recorder around, but you're going to use your iPad app as a method for adjusting volume as opposed to the knobs themselves? Is
1: is that practical? Uh, I mean, maybe there's a no, situation. No, no. I hate touch interfaces. Exactly. I hate it when... You know, you're, you're trying to adjust volumes with a touch interface. I mean, a mouse is bad enough. If you're in, you know, editing software uh, or audio recording software, you're on an audition or something like that, and you have to adjust the levels with the mouse, that sucks too. There's a reason why we all like audio boards, and we all like our fader sliders and our gain knobs and everything else. We like the knobs because we know exactly how we're going to manipulate. We can't just slip and do something by accident uh, like you can with a touch interface, Um, As well, too, like, I'm trying to think about writing volumes, like, where you keep your finger on a fader, because, say, you know, somebody's voice is really up and down and everything else, and you're trying to keep a hold of it. Uh, On an iPad, like, you're not physically touching anything, so how do you know when your finger starts to slip off, maybe, and goes to another slide or something else? It just seems like a recipe for disaster. Well, and there's probably I, lag
0: too. So if you're trying to, you know, write a fader with someone talking and you're watching them to see when they drift away from the mic or come closer to the mic, you know, you move on the pad and then you wait for mm-hmm. Bluetooth to transmit
1: it to the unit and change the volume level there. So I mean, I don't know. The only the only time that these kind of touch or remote control interfaces I found really to be useful and it's a bit niche but uh, when uh, before the show setting up a live band having an iPad that can remotely control my faders for me just to walk around and try to sweeten the mix in different areas of the auditorium that's extremely handy because I'm not going to do that constantly during a live show but I'll be like oh over here I need to tweak this a little bit and uh, without having to run back and forth to the soundboard after listening what's going on in the auditorium so in this kind of a situation I just it seems like they're just throwing features at it. They just keep throwing features. And I, I'm like, are, is, is there people asking for it? Like, is there a bunch of, like, internet trolls being like, what, eight, we need 10 XLR inputs, phantom power galore. <laughs> I don't get it.
0: I've only been on a few sets where we really needed this many inputs, uh, besides, a, you know, an auditorium sort of event. And that, in that situation, they, it was sort of a reality show, and they were doing lav mics on everybody, Every single person that was running around had a lav mic. And in that case, they did have a dedicated setup for that. But it, they were bringing it back to a head unit and then recording there. Uh, if you have mm-hmm. eight lav mics plugged into a you know a pack that you're carrying around, that seems,
1: I don't know, it doesn't seem like a well, good and idea. And part of it is what are you going to do in post, right? Because in filmmaking, you want individual tracks because you're going to play a whole lot in post. If it's something like a board of people talking or, um, or say it's a conference or something like that, I know a lot of people just won't care to have individual recordings of each mic because they aren't going to spend the time and post to sit there and mix it back together. They'll do a live mix and they'll record the live mix. And if they need a tweak or edit, they'll tweak or edit. But Recording all of these tracks gives me the impression that you're going to want to edit all of these tracks individually and remix them in post. And in a lot of just talking heads kind of situations, nobody's going to spend that kind of time. That's why, like, I guess small bands is the only thing that makes sense for me. And I guess I guess on a few film shoots where you're doing something that can only happen once and you're trying to capture a whole lot of the acoustics of the place, I guess it could make sense. I
0: drop all eight tracks when I do record that (laughs) much. I do actually drop all eight tracks in my timeline and I don't do a ton Mm -hmm. of editing, but I throw a gate on there and I set the gate threshold Mm -hmm. rather high so basically it silences the track unless the person is speaking so then that way you know if so and so was a little bit thin because of the position they were in the auditorium, or I need to Mm -hmm. uh, remove some noise or reduce a little bit of echo, I can still edit that track, but I put the gate as the first thing, so then it's only affecting that when it's in, you know, when it's coming in. Um, And I Mm -hmm. know that's, like, more than some people will do, and you're absolutely right. Working with that many tracks, you're starting (laughs) to get into, like, especially for an hour-long or a two-hour-long conference, I mean... (laughs) that's a lot of freaking audio to go through. You're not going to want to mess with all that, but if you have like some general practicalities, it is really nice to be like, okay, I didn't submix this down to two tracks, and now I can mess around with each one of these tracks. Or, you know, maybe Henry's mic had some hum in it, but he was sitting close enough to Diane that Diane's mic picked him up okay, so I use those two hmm. and like completely eliminate his track, as opposed to bringing the hum all the way back into the final mix. So, I, there's pros and cons to multi-track uh, recording, but this is a field recorder. This is something you carry around with yeah. you. It's designed to go in your bag. You know, you put something like a sound devices uh mixer unit in front of it and then you bring your audio into this as your recorder. Well, this is 8 tracks. You're going to need 8 sources and you're going to have to carry those sources around with you. Uh, there whether it's a wire feed it into your pack or whatever else. And when you get up to the number 8, that's getting that's getting up there. I mean, even if you okay, so you have your boom mic, you're splitting that out into two tracks, maybe. So now you you've got uh, two tracks eaten up by your boom mic. You've got a couple of wireless mm-hmm. packs on units out there. So now you're up to four. Okay, now what else do you need? Oh, maybe I'm bringing in I don't know um, some kind of sub mixer mix from uh, um, audio outside of the actual event that's going on. Okay, now you're up to six. After that, what else do you need? Right. I don't know. I mean, I can't think anything cuz like I'm going right. to be close enough to my subject that my boom mic should take care of it. But God forbid mm-hmm. that doesn't happen, I have some lobs that I can place around the room or on the subjects that are further away to capture their audio. And then from there, like I'm six really, that's even kind of uh, of going overboard. I think, you know, I've lived for years with a four-channel mixer in front of a two-track recorder, you know, and and not had any problems mm-hmm. at all. And four is kind of I don't know. I'm beating a dead horse here, but what I'm saying <laughs> yeah. is basically this is crazy amount of tracks, and it's a $1,000 price tag. Um, battery life may suffer because of Bluetooth as
1: well as some of the other Probably things. Probably terribly. It, Not yeah. even Bluetooth. I just think of how many preamps you're running off of. Oh, man, yeah.
0: Running all that phantom power, even if you drop it down to 24-volt phantom power instead of 48-volt phantom power, you're you're going to eat up batteries like nobody's business. And this thing is using AA batteries. So eight AA batteries, that's not a lot of juice. You're, you're probably yeah. looking at, especially with the color screen and transmitters and everything else, I mean, you're, you're talking maybe four or maybe five hours of battery life, and that's actually what the problem was with the Tascam DR680. The reason it never took off in popularity, because it, the original one started in the twelve dollars or $1,400 price range, is because it only got about four hours of battery life before it started keeling over on you, and you had to change out batteries on a regular basis, and that was eight AA batteries as well. So uh, even... Though this is a newer unit, I don't see them getting more efficient with power usage, especially with extravagance, like colored screen, you know all kinds of flashing lights and volume levels for every single fader, uh, phantom power on eight tracks this is gonna be a battery nightmare um <laughs> and a thousand dollars too, so you know it's really cool. I do like that they're innovating, and they are bringing really new and interesting features to the market. I bet this is mm-hmm. probably even an audio adapter for your p c so In that regard, you know... Like um, most of the Zooms are, yeah. Yeah, Zoom... That's one thing I've always complained about with Tascam's offerings is they have a USB port, but all they use it for is power. Uh, It's really simple to throw an extra chip in there and make it an audio interface, and they don't do it. But Zoom... Even the lowest grade unit there, H1, has audio interface capabilities. They use the same chip all the way through. So no matter what, you can plug it in and turn it into an XLR audio adapter for your computer. And that's pretty nice. Maybe, now, we're kind of like beating ourselves up here because we started saying, well, we only need this something like this for a (laughs) computer-plugged-in device to record a bunch of tracks. And if this is capable of being an audio interface with eight tracks for your computer, maybe... That's the solution. Maybe that's why you buy Mm -hmm. this is because you're like, okay, I don't want to go out and buy a Mark of the Unicorn unit or I don't want to go buy a crazy rack mounted Tascam unit. I want something that I can record tracks with, four tracks while I'm in the field and maybe eight tracks when I'm at a conference or something like that and interface it to my computer. There you go. Mm-hmm. Maybe that is the solution then. And a thousand dollars, if you're comparing it to a mark of the unicorn type of system, those are like fourteen or eighteen hundred bucks. Uh, yeah, I guess the the rack mounted dedicated rack mounted versions from like Tascam and uh, uh, Mofo. Uh, is not Mofo? What's the the one that has Fire in the title? Is it Profire? <laughs> Uh, whatever I, anyway i have
1: no idea yeah, your audio was,
0: knowledge is way beyond mine <laughs> anyway the point is uh, those are like 3 or 400 bucks but all they do is dedicated audio interface they are not for any field recording whatsoever. So, maybe that's the solution. You know what, I just changed my mind. I don't know that I hate this, I just think it's (laughs) only for very specific solutions. Okay, we've wasted enough time on the Zoom (laughs) F8. Let's move on down the line the news. This is really cool too, and something else I'm really excited about is the R9 Fury X from AMD. This is basically their answer to NVIDIA's GTX 980 Ti, which was released, uh, what, about a month ago or so? Uh, That's their top end GPU. And we are kind of concerned with uh, where AMD was going because with the R9 290X, they basically were like, okay, let's provide as much juice as we can to this, give it a 375-watt envelope, and you know, make it basically hot enough to cook eggs on so that we can keep up with what NVIDIA is doing. Now they're using a different memory technology, HBM, which is basically stacking the memory on a substrate interface on top of the GPU processor so that they can reduce the size. That also reduces power efficiency, or, well, no, it increases power efficiency, reduces power usage, and the form factor is really, I mean, I, I got to say it, it's cute. This thing is cute, man. It's like <laughs> it's like half the size, six inches compared to, I think, my Titan X in my current system is like nine or 11 inches. This is nice and mm-hmm. small. It's got a water block on it built in, uh, runs fairly silent. Devin, what do you think about this? You know, now that CUDA and uh, um, OpenCL, OpenCL are basically line for line in Adobe's support, you think mm-hmm. uh, you'd go for something like this, or are you still going to stay with NVIDIA?
1: No, no, definitely, because for me, um, I always enjoy uh, a quieter workstation, and not necessarily that water pumps are quieter than air cooling, but uh, those those fans that they throw on the graphics card, especially when they're really long, uh, are just they're always kind of too small and they always spin way too fast and you could get the third party kind that have like three big, you know, like 80 millimeter or whatever, 90 millimeter fans on them. And they're a little quieter, but then they heat up the rest of the system. It's like, there's really no ideal solution usually except for water cooling. And then you got to get a custom block. You got to tear the cart apart, everything else. I think it's cool that not only is it lower voltage, uh, but it's also, this makes it more compact. Um, as well as an, I think it would make it vi- a lot quieter than one of those little fans that normally tries to exhaust air out the back of the system, because I'm usually hacking my graphics cards so that when I idle, the fans pretty much turn down all the way because out of the entire computer, those are the noisiest fans in there. Um, and it's one of those that you can't necessarily easily just swap it out for something that's you know better or has liquid in the bearings or anything like that. So, I'm really excited about something like this, and especially seeing AMD wholly adopting the whole OpenCL. I would not be opposed to jumping over to AMD um, because – uh, especially too the wattage that's always a concern of mine too you get a bigger power supply it generates more heat that usually means that you got more fan noise from your power supply i like quieter computers and this looks like it could fit into one of those really small form factor computers where your graphic card length is very important to you because you're running something smaller than a mid tower so it's kind of like checking a lot of check boxes off for me and even though uh you know it has slightly less ram uh in all the benchmarks it's pretty much toe-to-toe with the 980. I mean, you know, there's some categories where it's a little better and uh, same with the 980. But for the most part, this is exciting. And I'm kind of hoping to see a lot more of the higher-end cards kind of doing some kind of uh, closed-loop water system for you because, uh, honestly, I feel like that's where it's going because, you know, everything keeps running hotter and hotter. And I'm like, well... We got to do something about it because running all these giant fans in my computer, I've got a turbojet that's sitting here, you know, trying to cool off, um, you know, 980s. So oh man, I've got the uh, R9
0: 290X in one of my systems, and yeah. it's got the Sapphire <laughs> cooler on it, which, yeah. uh, you know, actually, that's one of the the quieter coolers that you can get for an R9 290X. But it's three fans running, you know, at full bore, uh, trying to cool mm-hmm. down 375 watts or so at full full wide open you know and so it's it's like man really that's it's freaking loud and I've switched over to water cooling on most things in my system just because I'm tired of that sort of like random low level hum that I hear in my office (laughs) all the time but you know now like I've got to find a I have a small place now I have to find a place for my freaking server because my server is now the thing that's like humming in the room (laughs) next to me Yeah, exactly (laughs) and like I'm gonna have to lock it up in a closet or find somewhere that I can keep cool and and put it away by the Mm -hmm. way I I'm sweating right now because I was promised good weather out here, but it's like 100 degrees and our air conditioning broke down. So, man, is it hot in here? Um, and I've got How about two all those si- computers yeah I've got two <laughs> systems running in this room and then another two systems running in the next room and that's just generating a ton of heat so yeah I agree with you I like I like seeing the water cooling I also like seeing the size because now if I wanted to put this into some kind of petite rack mount system or if I want to put it into my Hpt or HTPC I could easily install that into a, a small case that could slide in between mm-hmm. you know something easy and nice and still have massive amounts Of graphics card power to maybe play games in 4K, edit in 4K. (laughs) And if you guys are wondering, um, I've done a few tests. You can go over to dslrfilmnoob.com and find them. Uh, OpenCL versus uh, CUDA is basically just. Uh, the difference in ways they send information to the card and the way that they handle it. Uh, CUDA is a different processing language for NVIDIA, and it's proprietary to NVIDIA. OpenCL is for everybody, and their hooks and their calls for different things to happen, uh, texturing, rendering, and so on, uh, are are differently labeled. And for a while, everything was moving strictly towards CUDA, but now that OpenCL has kind of taken over, uh, Adobe has released most of their plugins and their rendering stuff. Uh, even I think ray tracing now for After Effects in the current 2015 CC, it, it handles it in OpenCL if you'd like, and you get a lot of gain out of that. Um, it's almost one for one in all the testing I've done between the R9 290X and the Titan X as far as uh, output concerned. We're talking like three seconds difference for um, a 45 minute render. So mm-hmm. you know. It, it used to be a big thing to get a CUDA card to get an NVIDIA card, but now yeah. it's not so much. Uh, OpenCL is is just as good and
1: probably getting better and because if you like a few video games too, DJ, yeah, you also exactly. get to do that too without running two graphics cards. So that's always nice. Yeah. So what I'm actually what I'm doing right
0: now because all my computer power is dedicated to rendering. Um, I'm actually I've got one of those uh, NVIDIA Shield. Units underneath of my television, and when I can, I steal bandwidth from my uh, Titan X, and then I play games on that while I'm waiting for the <laughs> other computers to render things out. But man, uh, yeah, it's exciting times. Uh, the only thing I was disappointed on, and I'll say this before we move on, is just that the price. I was expecting to AMD mm-hmm. to come in with a little bit of a, a lower price on this. Uh, their uh, the retail price is six forty nine. The retail price for the GTX nine eighty Ti is also six forty nine. So you're not not really getting any savings out of this card versus the GTX 980. If they could have done this at like fifty five dollars less or a hundred dollars less, you know, in the five hundred dollar range, then it would have been even more attractive. It's still an attractive option, but you know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's kind of one of those things. The The other thing that I run into and I've, I've had this happen a few times is if you're going from one camp to the other and back again, drivers on your system can really cause you problems. Uh, the
1: Especially with editing. Yeah, exactly. Editing. Especially with Fresh, editing. Not even video games, just editing software will start to throw a hissy fit if there's two different things installed even if they're not
0: being used yeah last time i was doing side by side render testing with the r9 290x and the titan x it was like i basically after i was done with those tests i had to wipe the system and start over again because there were drivers <laughs> left over all over the place and they were just messing things up and like it wasn't rendering out correctly after a while and all that all oh, ugh yeah ugh, ugh. Okay it,
1: there are people who do make utilities for cleaning out drivers if anyone's having issues with that kind of stuff that you can try before you decide to just format it and reinstall Windows.
0: Now, speaking of issues, something that everybody should be aware of is release forms. If you don't have your release form signed from your talent, that could be an issue. Now, I'm (laughs) old school, and I use paper in order to get uh, my release form signed. I literally go You're so smug about it. You're so
1: smug. I use paper. I like trees. (laughs) And a pen.
0: Ballpoint. The textile feel of writing (laughs) on a sheet of paper. No. (laughs) I'm just—I've never really like thought about making that more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. So honestly, I just go out. I have a little like briefcase with you know some extra scripts, some uh, release forms, and everything else. Especially if you have uh, any talent that's going to be nude during the shoot, uh, getting release forms is really important because you oh, may yeah. not be able to sell your product after you're done with it if if that's the case. Um, so. I do that on paper, but apparently uh, these guys have come out with, Snapwire has come out with an app that is release forms uh, on your iPad or iPhone where you just basically sign it digitally just like you would with these uh, new credit card apps. It's pretty interesting. Uh, It has basically release forms for photography, uh, Shutterstock, uh, uh, Getty Images, ASMP. Um, It's it's pretty nice. Uh, What do you think about this? Are you going to start carrying your phone around as
1: your release form? I You know what? I've never I, – I prefer paper, too, and I know that sounds crazy. Um, with the uh, the age that we live in and all of the technology we have at our fingertips, I have – I usually do have installed on Android because I'm Android and not iPhone over here. Keep in mind that the story we're talking about is iPhone only currently. But uh, I ha- I do have some software installed that has generic release forms and things like that kind of queued up. So if I don't have paper on me and something is happening spur of the moment – Um, I can at least get something in writing. Like something is always better than nothing um, because at least you have a leg to stand on. If you don't have any signature from them on any kind of paperwork, uh, then you can end up you know, in a lot of trouble or have a fight ahead of you in trying to uh, secure the rights to the content that you created. So I I have an app on my phone. It's ready in case I've needed it. I haven't needed it yet. I'm always pretty prepared going out with paperwork. Uh, But much like you, I kind of print it out depending on what I'm doing and go there. Now, if you're doing a lot of stock photos uh, with these websites, I could see this being real nice and easy. I know iPhone also has other uh, apps for letting you do custom releases. Android really doesn't. There's like one or two that lets you upload custom PDFs and you kind of have to make an account and go through this trouble. Uh, And like I said, I do it and I don't do it as my primary option, but to me, this is the future, especially for a lot of hip photographers. They'll just whip out their iPad or their iPhone and be like, all right, you can look through it and sign here. Um, and that way nobody loses it. They get emailed a copy of it after they sign it. So they have a copy of the paperwork. You have a copy of the paperwork. It's in the cloud. So there's a lot of positives to doing it this way. Um, one of those that I just haven't really gone around to getting it all set up just because for my workflow on Android, it's a pain in the butt right now because nobody makes a decent app for it. I think on iPhone, though, I've seen quite a few people use this kind of
0: stuff. Yeah, this is the fourth or fifth app I've seen out there for iPhone. Um, yeah, Android users, no love yet. Uh, a lot of times developers <laughs> hit the iPhone first, so that's just how it goes. But uh, one thing I'm going to have to look into, and I haven't I haven't done this yet… Um, I have my standard release forms. I have like seven of them for nude models for, you know, regular stuff, everything else. And I moved to another state and I, you know, I had those looked over by a law firm while I was in the Midwest. Now, I don't know if the rules and regulations change depending on the state you're in. I might have to to find out what, uh, what, what flies out here versus back home. Um, working... Uh, for corporate production, someone takes care of it for me so I don't have to worry about it. But when I'm doing my own projects on the side, I, I generally have to fill those out myself. So uh, if anybody knows a good guy to talk to in uh, the Portland area, let me know because I, I I might swing over and get some information or have um uh, that reworked. Uh, Always make sure you get your release form signed, guys. Especially if you're putting it out there, even if you put it on YouTube or or something like that. If something goes crazy, you know, you could see a takedown notice. You could even see a defamation lawsuit. You could see all kinds of other things that could really make your life difficult. So always, always do that.
1: A common misconceptions since we are talking about legality here is, um, while when you're in a public place um, and there is understood. Uh, that it is a public place and other people understand that they are in the public. I mean, this uh, this doesn't count if you're like taking naughty photos of girls or something like that in public. That's still inappropriate and that's still against the law. But in general, of uh, above the collar, if you're taking photos in public, you are allowed to take those photos, um, even though security guards and other people on private property may give you some uh, slack for it. If you're on public property, taking pictures of public property, you can do it. But you can't distribute it. You can't sell it. You can't show it to anybody unless you uh, the people in that photo have released the rights to you. So that's something else, too. If you're making, I don't know, YouTube prank videos or something stupid like that, you can't show their face without their permission, their likeness. Otherwise, they can come back at you. Um, Most of the prank videos you see, they get release forms and you can tell when they didn't because they usually blur out the face because they don't have permission to use that person, even though. They are allowed to film in public. It doesn't mean that you can turn around and sell or show off or distribute what you've shot in public. So keep that in mind. Um, yeah, that could Because I know a lot of people just think, oh, I'm in public, I can do whatever I want. And it's like, no, you can't because uh, you can't just take people's likenesses and start making money off of them. That's not, that's not nice.
0: Yeah, and there's um, extra stuff, if, if it's like a celebrity or something like that, where mm-hmm. uh, it applies even more so and you have to be very careful of that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it, man, you almost... Consult someone. Always get something signed. Yeah, consult, so if you're not sure, go on the conservative side and have something signed. That's, I, you know, sometimes I have people on set that don't even end up being on film and I have them sign it just in case because we're shooting it. We're like, ah, I don't really like this guy. We're not going to use him, but he was here,
1: you know, sign this. We may end up using it for something. And, or even behind the scenes video, if you have a behind the scenes video, your crew needs to sign too. Exactly. They probably won't have an issue with it, but anyone who appears on camera and you're going to going to turn around show that person's face they need to approve it um that's that's just the way it works over here in america i mean obviously don't take this as legal advice you should always go to a lawyer if you want uh uh, you know something actually in concrete stone this isn't legal advice at all we can't say that it is exactly Uh, but these are things to think about and guidelines if you need to know more i suggest seeking out a lawyer or even general lawyers have a pretty good idea about this kind of stuff
0: yeah, one other thing um and I caught this on on an indie production that I was working on. They handed me a release form to sign and I looked at it and I'm like you're getting people to sign this and he's like what? I'm like you're wa- <laughs> like there was a waiver for all liability. At the bottom, and I was like, "Well, you can't do that." And he's like, "Oh, they signed it, you know." Like I'm like, "Yeah, but Mm -hmm. you you know, you can't waive all of your your liability to them if you hurt them on set, you know." He's like, "Hey, Mm -hmm. I don't. They're signing it. It's not my problem." I'm like, "Well, I'm I'm gonna cross this off and initial it." And he's like, "Okay, whatever, (laughs) you know." But I mean, like he basically covered every possible thing that could go wrong. Plus, the mm-hmm. release form and throwing it into the regular release form, and people weren't reading it. He'd hand him two pages, and they're like, What is this? He's like, It's your release form for being on film. Okay. You know, and then they right. wouldn't even, you know,
1: check or read it over or anything. It's like, man wow yeah wow and and i'm 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 pretty sure there's a legal gray area too of um having both the form for the release and the form for liability in the same signature i'm pretty sure those since they're vastly different uh legal concepts they need to be on uh, separate forms with separate signatures but <laughs> That's something else, too. Read, guys. Read before you sign anything. That should just be a general rule anytime in your life, whether it's for a house or
0: whatever else. The other one that gets slipped in a lot is um, a photographer will sometimes throw in video as well as as photography Mm -hmm. and audio, everything. So that way, if he ends up filming a little bit while he's also taking stills or the stills get used in a video production, he's covered on that round, too. So just a few little tricks and tips. We are not lawyers. Again, Devin's absolutely right. (laughs) We are not giving you legal advice at all. Go out find someone who knows a lot about it, I'm just speaking from the experiences I've had, and as Devin is as well. So, uh, make sure you kind of talk to somebody. Uh, It's a little expensive to get a lawyer, but a lot of times, like a hundred bucks, will get you an hour of consulting to just you know, or a half an hour of consulting to figure something out. Especially Mm -hmm. uh, if you're not sure about what you're doing. So, don't just jump into this and then get your pants suit off. That's a bad thing. Um, Moving on down (laughs) the line here, this is actually another issue that's come up uh, with uh, lenses: Sigma and Tamron. both have announced that they'll be releasing uh, firmware updates for their lenses this is due to the 5ds and to a lesser extent the t6s and the t6i apparently canon is doing something different in the background with their focus control system which is causing these lenses to have issues in live view mode with the 5ds as well as the t6i that's weird right
1: that is weird um Not to say I'm not surprised that Canon would so that um, people would have a hard time adapting, say, people who are using Canon lenses on, uh, you know, some Sony DSLRs or what have you. Uh, You know that Canon, while it happens, is probably not a fan of that. They would prefer if you shot on Canon products because it's Canon. Uh, So I wouldn't be surprised if they might be migrating over to kind of a new electric drive system. It could be better engineer too. maybe that they've um, they've been on an old system and they go, you know what? It's time we started changing and started uh, developing a better way of doing this um, and stopped with all the reverse compatibility with the old L series lenses. But I wouldn't be surprised either if every Canon unupdated un- Canon P- glass works on these, like the really old, uh, you know, Canon L 70, five to 200 or whatever if all those probably work on here just fine and then your third party lenses are the ones that don't work right because of uh the new body types
0: yeah i you know i was trying to think about how they would actually mess this up and cause problems with uh uh, Third party lenses, and they're all you know, PWM drive for the focusing yeah. system. So, well, except for the new STM systems, which are uh, stepper, but anyway, the, the point is, is the system itself is designed to be backwards compatible with all your lens glass. So, I wonder if it's like, mm-hmm. hey, I see that I've got a Canon L series uh, 24 millimeter f14 plugged in, you're right. good to go, buddy. Like, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> is this a Sigma 24 millimeter f14 art? I, you know, you're on the work okay. To not work so great, list uh, we'll we'll take care of that for you, buddy. You know,
1: it's, <laughs> right? Know. It could it it could be something like that. And um, uh, PWD uh, pulse width modulation, <laughs> PWM pulse width modulation, uh, is one of those things that. Um, there's many different ways of incorporating it and it involves a lot of electronics with sine waves and all kinds of stuff that they could just modify it a little bit here or there in a way that a manufacturer is not expecting their lenses to be driven. And then you've got issues where you're missing focus because it's overthrowing itself back and forth and it affects focusing speed and everything else. So, uh, but it's good to see that um, Tamron Sigma, are on top of this. They see that it's a problem and they're immediately responding to their uh, consumer base saying, hey, we're, we're working on it. We got an update. We're going to try to get these things working right with these cameras. Yeah, no word yet on how you... Uh actually do this so there may be like some
0: sort of mail-in issue or something like that so keep an eye out for that if i find anything i'll definitely add it to the show uh also if you are a sigma owner and you have that cool little sigma usb adapter plate <laughs> i think you'll be able to update your firmware that's, that's yourself how it
1: works also a tip um, for some people it won't work if you're very far away but there was uh for example um I'm not going to mention them by name because they're not a sponsor, but there is a camera place that opened up nearby here recently. And uh, I went to their grand opening just to check the place out and their studio and their rates and whatnot. And they actually had a Sigma employee or a Sigma representative there with the adapter who was just doing updates for people's Sigma lenses. If you brought them in, he had the adapter to hook the lens into it, hook it up to a computer and do the updates for you. So um If you kind of need stuff done fast or something like that, you may want to check around with local shops. And sometimes the local shops will have the Sigma gear that they need, and they'll just update it for free because that's what Sigma does. They want to keep you happy about their products.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. Um, I've never used the USB adapter for Sigma lenses, but uh, it's out there. It's a thing. I think they're $299, so maybe you can sell your services to your local (laughs) photographers. (laughs) <laughs> Moving on down the line, speaking of selling services, by the way, the uh, Pandora DSLR <laughs> Optimizer. Okay, so um, I'm going to go ahead and share a picture of this with the stream. For those of you listening, you I'll, should, kinda, it's, I'll talk you through it's it. It's way different. So this is a really different design. Okay, basically, this is an Indiegogo uh, campaign to create an audio adapter slash battery power pack slash light slash solar-powered USB battery charger (laughs) unit for your camera. This sort of falls in line with like the lunchbox that we were talking about a couple of episodes ago and that Devin has in his possession. Uh, This thing is a little wacky. Um, First of all, it's on Indiegogo, so I'm going to have to throw that out there right now. Uh, for those of you not familiar with the Kickstarter and Indiegogo, Indiegogo is basically the, like, hey, guys, guess what? Um, if you don't fund this, the guy still gets the money, and he can do whatever he wants. You know, so it's a little, like, it's more Wild West of this sort of thing. No, this is, like, everything in the kitchen sink. And, and Devin and I were talking about this pre-show. First of all, I know that you feel clever adding a solar panel to your unit, but <laughs> is it practical? If you think about what you're doing with your stuff, are you going to set your camera gear out in the sun for, you know, X number of hours to charge batteries? A a panel of this capacity, you're talking like days to charge it up. So, I mean, it could trickle charge it, but it's not going to charge up eight uh, AA batteries. This thing is basically add wood to it to make it, you know, classy. And then it's, (laughs) you know, the, the light in the front, I don't know. And it's a really weird shape. I know they've got a handle for it that goes over the top that attaches to the back. It's got a built-in speaker. It's got a shoulder pad. It's got some other stuff. Devin, what do you think about this sort of bizarre contraption?
1: Um, I I tell you, I'm not a fan of the marketing material. Um, I really – I'm going to hold off with anything super like concrete uh, without having to try one firsthand. I mean – If they want to send me one for a weekend, I'll go out and shoot with it. I'll record myself shooting with it. I'll try to uh, use it to the best of its ability and see if it's any good. Uh, But for the main part, just looking over a lot of the marketing material, it seems a bit silly, like they're missing the point. Um, For example, when they talk about power, they say that their Pandora only weighs one kilo and an Anton Bauer weighs three kilos, which is fair. But then they say the setup time for the Pandora is 10 seconds. And the setup time for an Anton Bauer battery is six minutes, what? which I'm kind of like, if if your rig already has a slot for an Anton Bauer, say like a logger's lunchbox or something like that, and you already have a slot. Um, it's 10 seconds. You pop the old battery off, you pop the new one on and you go record. So, um, it's, it's things like that that I'm like, I feel like you're not picking the right battles. And then again, with like the solar charger, I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to pay for that. Uh, you need solar chargers that are like six times, eight times this size to just, you know, give a cell phone one amp of five volts. So explain to me how you're going to charge up your big batteries um, or even just extend the time. I wouldn't even necessarily say charging, but I'm say, oh, if you're outside shooting all day if the solar panel added an extra hour or two to your shooting or something like that, I'd say that's reasonable. But with how small the solar panel is, um, there is math you could do on it that I don't have up in front of me right now to figure out how long it would take to charge something like that. But I'm guessing that it's not even going to necessarily slow down um, the discharge rate. It's basically just going to sit there and not do a whole lot, um, you know, and they, they bring up other things like, Oh, the zoom H4n uh, isn't rechargeable over USB. I go, well, USB is the worst charging interface ever. I mean, I've got external battery packs for like charging cell phones and other gear that take five hours to charge because it's a 10,000 milliamp battery that's being charged over one amp of five volts. It's just one of those things that I go, "Eh, this doesn't really seem uh, such a great idea. Uh, There's a reason why a lot of people don't do it, and that's because it'll take forever to charge. Um, I mean, there's some stuff that I really like about it. Let's not stay, you know, on the negative train here. Um, I think for being a small kit that adds battery life, uh, it's kind of got an interesting form factor. I'd want to use it in person to see how useful that form factor is. Uh, but for me, you know, and they've got handles and accessories and like some shoulder mounts and stuff like that. I have to play with it to really see if this works for me because obviously if it's too heavy, then that's a killer. Um, For the audio
0: listeners, I'm going to go ahead and describe this here. It's basically a (laughs) wedge-shaped unit... That's about the size of the middle part of your arm, or maybe a foot long or so. It has a solar panel across the top, XLR audio adapters on either side, and it kind of makes an L at the end underneath the camera. And underneath the camera, it has another XLR input, plus it has a level gauge and some switches and knobs. Uh, the armature for your shoulder and the uh, handle itself come out of the back, and then there's a little set of slots across the back. Uh, they've veneered this with wood, and uh, the slots hold uh, your SD cards all the way across the back, so it doesn't. You know, you you don't use the SD cards in there; they just hold them. So you have extra ones there, which that also seems a little weird. Um, the The unit itself is basically flat and long and sort of L-shaped, and it's designed to go with your camera as far forward as far forward as possible. And then you put a grip on it, and you're supposed to push the long portion against your shoulder. So it's it's a weird it's a weird
1: design. It, it, it's kind of like a shotgun mount, maybe you could say. Like yeah, a, maybe. A you know, rifle mount
0: kind of thing. Yeah, like you're designed to push it against your shoulder and have your camera kind of out in front of you a, a little ways. Uh, you know, I don't want to be too negative. It's just looking no, no, over the specs there, and stuff, there's it a lot seems that's like right. some of it's a pipe dream. Like, you know, definitely <laughs> you don't need any solar panels on this. That's silly. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the wood trim, like, let's focus on getting the product out first, guys, before we worry about putting wood trim on it. You know, uh, the the shape itself is it's interesting but is it it's not going to be balanced and i don't see anywhere for the shoulder version of it to have a counterweight to kind of hold weight on the back to sort of float it out at all right uh, it's it seems it's, like it's designed what, specifically around holding the camera like in its normal format not with any extras so you're really going to have to be able to like grab the camera to hold on to it to make this a uh, worthwhile
1: experience i don't know right it seems wonky there's there's some let me go over some stuff that I do like. I like the um, I like the fact that it's got a, a rail on the right side because that's an area that you normally uh, the right side of your camera. You don't touch um, because most of our cameras are set up to be on the right side. Uh, but you don't you know, that is sliding. I see them use it for the little uh, receivers for the wireless audio. And I go, that's a cool idea. I like yeah. that. Um. And also, too, they're going to take their battery and they're going to conform it out into three different voltages. And I go, that's nice. Not needing another box to sit here if you've got an accessory or a EVF or something like that that requires a kind of a different voltage than the 12 that I'm imagining the battery's probably run off of. And the meters are audio mirrors are right where they should be. I don't know if they're bright enough, but they're right in front of your face, right where they should be for managing that. I'm sure once you get it all synced up with your camera. So there's a few things like here or there that I go, these are a few good solid ideas. And then I feel like everything else they could dream of, they threw at this thing. And I'm like, I think you're overcomplicating the product. I think you could get the job done with a whole lot less. I mean, they're, they're advertising like gold-plated connectors. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, I hope so. I saw that and I was like, wait a minute. Are we
0: monster <laughs> cables here? I mean, I don't know.
1: Yeah, So, and, and same thing, too, where they, they show against a shoulder rig. They're like, oh, a shoulder rig setup time is six minutes. Ours is only 10 seconds. <laughs> I guess if you set it up from scratch, but most people don't go out on a set and set it up from scratch. Um, Do you think that one of those, LED light that's in the front is going to be w- worth anything? I mean, it looks no, fairly I mean, small it, it's, and blocky. And it's in the wrong place too. It's below the camera. I don't know anyone, even if you're doing um, ENG electronic news gathering. uh, I don't know of anyone who would light from underneath the lens. I don't think that that's flattering. They usually use an overhead light for a reason. And that's because uh, the lower the light gets, the more menacing the people tend to look. So it's one of those where I go, I'm not sure how bright it's going to be. And then what happens? You turn on that light and then it, it, the battery life falls even more don't get me wrong i'd love to test this thing i'm not gonna <laughs> buy it on kickstarter i already have a logger's lunchbox that uh, uh i'm working out and trying to get use out of but uh right now they say it, the msrp will be 800 but you can still right now uh, there's i don't know 60 left at the at this recording the streaming that's you can get 50 percent off for 400 dollars.
0: yeah and i think Maybe the. That's worth the original deal that kind of made this sort of uh, pop was that it was 249 out of the gate to to get started for the yeah. early bird special. And so they sold 25 of those. It has been fully funded, so I mean, that's good. It's it's interesting and I do like that people are doing new things with this sort of device. Hopefully it gets out on the market. Um maybe it's awesome. You know what? I I don't want to be too harsh on this thing. It's just, it's a really weird shape and design. Not my thing, but it could be your thing. So take a look. You can find a link in the show notes. Uh, Definitely worth at least looking at. Um, If you find anything more solid on this, let me know. I've watched some of the videos and stuff, and, you know, it seems a little goofy to me, but that's just me. Now, what doesn't seem goofy to me and is really sexy, actually, is this Miticon 85mm F1.2 FE lens. Uh, That's a Sony mount lens f1.2 we're finally starting to see some big wide open lenses and this is full frame it is kind of soft at f1.2 but man it's got f1.2 and on the sony a7s this could be A low-light monster Uh, this is also in line with uh, medicons other adapt or other lenses they had the uh, 50 millimeter f12 recently I think no that was f10 actually so that is Mm -hmm. really sexy Uh, Devin have you taken a look at any of the images from the uh, early release test shots
1: oh yeah I've been looking at them and I do see what you mean by soft but not necessarily in a bad way um because it's not like it's losing contrast um and it doesn't i mean not that these shots i know exactly how they're taken but it also doesn't look like that there's a whole lot of flaring issues which is always a concern if you're going to open up that wide but you're right this combined with um uh you know a little monster oh man yeah could really make some crazy stuff happen um there, I know this is showing uh, some of the softness at 1.2.
0: Yeah, I know this is only uh, a YouTube stream, so it's not very easy to see. But if you look at this uh, F12 shot here, and then as they go up to F28, it gets pretty sharp. Um, it's soft, but it's sort of soft in that, like, uh, fluffy uh, dream sequence, soft, you know, sort romantic of way, kind of way. Yeah, it's sort of like somebody put a haze filter on it as opposed to. You know, I, I that's what it looks like to me, and I'm looking at some of these shots. Uh, you know, here's some flowers, and at the closest focal range of one meter, and and
1: so on, and it it looks really mm-hmm. good. I mean, yeah, well, it's because the bokeh is so so creamy, right? Yeah, and exactly. that's, that's, I think part of the reason why it doesn't feel necessarily so soft because the background is so creamy uh, that it still looks uh, sharp. It still looks sharp compared to the background, and so. Uh, you know, if you're pixel peeping and taking tests, you'll be like, oh, that's not, you know, super sharp. But if you're just concerned with having good looking photos and, uh, you know, a good looking shot for your video, um, it's one of those that compared to the background, it's going to look pretty sharp. Sure. Side by side, it won't look sharp compared to if you stop it down to, you know, F 2.8, like every other lens, it gets better the, uh, you know, the closer you get to F5 or F6 or something like that. But in this situation, I consider this completely, completely usable, especially if somebody uses a SLR magic 25 millimeter, uh, at T 0.95 T 0.95 is pretty soft and sometimes a little too soft to, um, necessarily shoot somebody's face unless there's a specific style I'm going for. And most of the time, I'm stopping that down to 1.6 or 1.8 because, uh, it's just a little too soft, but these shots right here, uh, definitely look like to me, they're usable. I I, I'm not, um, yeah, by the time you get compression running on these
0: with uh, video, you know, you're going to 1080p as opposed to full res. They'll, yeah, you're probably not even going to notice the softness. I mean, F1.2 on the 5D Mark III. Uh, it may be a little bit soft, wide open in the center, but add in video mode at 1080p, you don't even see it. it. It just looks beautiful. Um, I don't shoot wide open all the time like that. And you're right. There are very specific reasons to do so. <laughs> Most of the time people get out of control with <laughs> that sort of thing. And it just becomes I'm trying too much. to find the focus. Yep, exactly. But this does look really good. I believe the lens is priced at about 899 They are for sale on eBay right now. We should see them coming to other places. Uh, distributors in the future. The fifty one zero is still out there. Kind of been eyeballing it. Haven't pulled the trigger on it. I haven't gotten very many Sony A- A7S FE lenses yet, so um and in fact all i've done is basically adapted um minolta lenses to the uh, sony la4e adapter so i haven't really moved forward with that i don't know if i'm going to dive in and invest a ton of money in sony lenses or if i'm just going to continue to keep my canon lenses on there but these are pretty cute and i cute sexy man i'm using these words constantly today i think the heat <laughs> might be getting to my brain All right, moving on from there, we've got one question up in the chat room here, and it's kind of off topic, but I figured we'll throw it in before we finish the show. Uh, Basically, they're asking what camera we would suggest between the FS100, the A7S, and the PMW-F7. Now, that's a pretty wide price range there you're covering uh, from the Mm -hmm. F7 down to the FS100, uh you yeah, know, there's pros and cons here. Uh Devin, do you want to start or do you want me to roll in and do sure. it?
1: Sure. No, I'll start on this. Um, you know, you say you want run and gun. It really depends on how important that form factor is for you because if that is all you'll be doing exclusively and you won't necessarily have a team or anyone to support you, um, then something like the I mean, you threw it out there, so don't don't uh say that I'm saying oh you need to spend more money. Uh but the F uh FS seven uh, is kind of built for that out of the box, and it's got the internal 4K, and it's ready to go for a running gun. It's got your uh, XLR inputs, and you know your ND filters and everything else. And so while something like an A7S is smaller, uh, by the time you get the ND filters, get an external recorder to do your 4K, if 4K is important to you, and all that kind of stuff, you end up with a lot of adapters and odds and ends. It's nice because it fits nicely in your backpack and it's light. But then at the same time, when you pull it out, you got to spend a bunch of time putting stuff together. And it's not necessarily a run-and-gun solution uh, as much as something like um, uh, the FS7. As for the FS100, um, I've really liked it. Uh, and I think that, you know, uncompressed outputs and everything else, there's a whole lot you can do with the camera, but the ergonomics of it uh, for me personally that have kind of killed it.
0: It's just, yeah, yeah. It, it,
1: it's killed it for me. And that's a shame because the camera works great. And I know w- with the right support gear and everything else, it works great. But while the price on it is really good, by the time you get that kitted out with like a good shoulder rig and everything else, because when you say run and gun, I think you want to pick this up and hit record. Um, which usually means shoulder mounted uh, when I think of running gun, you can run and gun with stuff in front of you, but it's one of those where if you don't know how long you'll be shooting for or something like that, shoulder mounts just makes sense to me in those situations where you don't know what you're up against. Maybe you need a stable shot. Maybe you need handheld. It's good to have those options. So once, and I'm not even saying you need to go with like a wooden camera or something like that, but once you get shoulder mounts and everything else for an FS 700, get the ergonomics where you want it, it's become bigger. It's become bulkier and you've probably added to, Two thousand the price of it to get it all ergonomics that you want. Um, so, as much as I hate to say it because it is the most expensive option that you provided us, uh, the FS7 is kind of built for that uh, running gun. You can tell that they kind of designed it to be an ENG camera. So that's kind of where I'd be like, well, if that's important to you, and especially if 4K is important to you, hey, it even comes with a uh, a handle to hold on to the top of it and a handle to uh, grab it and hit record on the bottom of it. So. For me, I say that it's a very flexible camera and you know that would probably be the one to go with, but DJ, what do you think? Okay, so I'm looking at the pricing here because I I had to refamiliarize my price. I was thinking it was
0: around seven or six thousand for the F- FS7, but it looks like it's actually $8,000. eight thousand dollars. So yes, yes. so it, that's a it's a good price for the camera, but it's also very spendy. You can set up an entire kit for that. So if you want the best, I agree that camera is the best, but it's not going to leave you very much in your finance department to purchase ancillary gear. Now both the FS100 and A7s are going to require kit. Um, the A7s, I've got mine kitted out with uh, some rails and stuff like that, uh, and it's not a super expensive investment uh, for the A7s. I think I have uh, maybe four hundred or five hundred dollars into the rig that I use on a regular basis, and so it's not adding that much to the price. And I think the A7s is down to like two grand or less if you can find it on sale. Uh, the yeah. FS100. You're going to have to spend a little bit more money if you kit that out. Uh, the box shape makes it really uncomfortable for running and shooting. So they they sell rigs, and they're nice. Uh, wooden Camera sells one for, like, a grand and some change. Uh, there are a bunch of uh, stuff from Film City, which is the generic rig maker on eBay that you can find <laughs> for maybe four or $500 from India. Um
1: those things will make it work, but that one's probably the least ergonomic. If you can, but you, and you also need to think about getting an EVF. Um, with running gun and shoulder mounts, the FS100 does not have uh, an EVF. Well, electronic yeah, but view it does have for the, you to use. While... It does have the flip
0: out screen on the top, it and they sell the little slide on EVF, so you can. But I'm saying it's
1: on your shoulder, you can't use that, can you? No, no. You'd almost have to hold it like this. you have to hold it in a front blood. of you, and now you're carrying a camera, which I'm like, if you're running gun, after six hours of carrying a camera, you're really tired of carrying a camera.
0: But so. I think where I'm going, though, is that with – with the budget of the FS7 which is going to put you at a $8,000, you could really deck out either the FS100 or the A7S to the ump degree and throw in some lenses and pretty much have a full kit. So if you're looking for affordability and you still want good image quality and 4K isn't your end all result, you're not going to strap like a you know some mm-hmm. kind of uh, external recorder to your a7s and you're okay with 1080p the a7s is probably my choice simply because the low light capability is awesome kidding it out it's not going to be that expensive if you go on the high side and really go mm. crazy with your rig you're probably talking like a thousand dollars then adding uh, lenses and stuff to that you're still going to be under that eight thousand dollar mark and you can buy the 55 1-8. you can buy the new 35 millimeter f2 the those zeiss lenses that just came out the uh 85 millimeter yeah. and the uh 55 millimeter both look Really nice. Uh, they've got some good zooms finally coming to the A7S platform. Uh, you can now get a 24 to 70 f4 and a 24 to 70. I think they've got the f2.8 coming shortly. So yeah, to me, and, and if
1: you're going to do run and gun, you want you generally want zooms. Um, you know, I've done run and gun with, with primes, but it's not always easy. If you're doing if you're doing documentary work, you're trying to run around and grab a shot. Zooms are super important, and then you want fast zooms because you'll usually be in a place where you can't control lighting. So that's where something like getting an a7s and a really great zoom lens or two really great zoom lenses uh, will probably come in more handy than say just getting an fs7 and maybe a little prime lens to throw on it yeah
0: the other thing to think about too is the fs100 is pretty dated now i mean it's only a couple years old so saying it's dated is kind of weird to me (laughs) but it it is you know sensor technology has moved quite a uh, bit further forward from the time that was released so you know you're gonna get the same. Uh, visual performance out of something like the uh, uh, RX100, or RX10, and those are point-and-shoot cameras uh, with b- arguably as good or better sensors than the FS100. So you're not you're not moving uh, forward with your image quality technology. Uh, the A7S, they are going to be releasing probably an A7S Mark II. The price will drop on it. That makes it even more affordable to shoot on. Uh, if you want 4K, my my suspicions are that the next version of the A7S will have 4K internally because every single camera Sony seems to be kicking out right now has 4K recording, so that's another thing to think about and the A7S is small and petite, as De- Devin mentioned. So, you know, I'm kind of a price conscious guy. So, when I usually recommend <laughs> kit, I say like, "Look, what are you trying to do? How much money do you have?" And it seems to me like mm-hmm. I would set the $8,000 limit of the FS7 as your dollar threshold, and then just kit the heck out of a mid-range A7S,
1: and you'll and it'll take a really you a lot setup. further, and you'll be you'll be able to accomplish a lot more and get a lot further with a full kit with different lenses and uh, different maybe filters and options and batteries and memory cards and everything else. Yeah, Or, or even a stabilizer just... like this one right here for a thousand dollars. Then, uh, you know, you still have room <laughs> to have a stabilizer in there. Yeah. Or yeah, support gear, uh, tripods, cranes, all that kind of stuff. That's important too, especially if you're doing running gun, a super light, super compact tripod uh, makes all the difference if you're running from place to place.
0: Yeah. Anything that can add motion to your shots is really cool. Um, those really small, cranes Uh, i've got one here from it's called the aviator uh that's a great little crane it's only six feet but it adds like full up and down motion uh you know, honestly, a lot of people think about the camera first. Um, don't spend all your money on the camera. You know, you can go out and shoot beautiful images with a T2i, for God's sakes, and a T2i body will set you back like 140 bucks. You just need to focus in on lenses and all the other stuff that goes around your camera because that's what will make the biggest difference. Uh, sliders, uh, cranes, uh, any kind of stabilizing mm-hmm. units, lenses, obviously, lights. audio kit, lights, you know, if you spend all your money on the latest and greatest body, you're not going to have any money left over for any of the stuff that you actually need to finish the the whole filming process. You know, a lot of people will mm-hmm. buy a nice camera, but then they don't actually go out and buy a nice boom mic. They, you know, they don't spend any money on that or they cheap out on their lighting kit and they don't have good enough light to actually film. You know, uh, it's, it's silly to buy the best camera possible. If your budget is small, if you have all the money in the world, mm-hmm. by all means, you know, go wild, buy everything. But if you don't, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. be realistic in what you can get. And, Anymore, you can do so much with even the lowest end DSLRs that it's it's not even funny. Uh, it's put yeah. professionals out of the business all over the place that used to be able to get work for five or six hundred dollars a day. Now they're not getting any work because these kids with uh, you know a T two I are going out and taking over and doing it for half the price or a quarter of the price, and you can't even afford to you know be in the market with your camera rent and everything else. That's a crazy rant that I'm not going to get into anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the point is, you know, stick with the middle range, I think. I would avoid the F S one hundred simply because of the box shape. Um and the F seven, it's a beautiful camera, way out of the price range as someone who's trying to build a little running gun kit that's i mean that's a pipe Mm -hmm. dream you're gonna have to get a loan for that unless you have a substantial amount of money or you want to you know sell your car and buy that you know camera or whatever (laughs) Uh, anyway i totally agree that's kind of our answer on that no more questions in the question deal so we're gonna drop off on that devin do you have a pick of the week or should we skip that this week
1: uh no, I just I wanna uh I wanna rent the new Metabone Speed Booster XL for the uh uh for my Panasonic. Um it seems like uh reviews or some videos are popping out of it and I'd love to try it out. The and price see, though, um, man, that's like what, six ninety nine? Six fifty. Six fifty six fifty. Jesus, yeah. you can buy a whole lens for that. <laughs> Yeah, I know, but it's one of those things I just want to try out and see if something like that with uh, some bigger lenses is really necessary. Uh, like I said, like we both talked about, I've, you know, uh, looking at the Panasonic lenses, they have some great lineups that are built for it, as well as um, Voightlander and SLR Magic make some great primes and whatnot. So, well, let's battle uh, back for a second and talk about but this. So, okay. One of those things I want to rest yes <laughs> yeah so let's let's
0: uh, pedal back and talk about this for a second because i you know i've looked at this and i have a speed booster already i've got the metabones uh the last version the m43 whatever mark 4 and okay so this one basically is going to provide more light to the sensor than this version because it's more optimized to bring the image from the lens and focus it down onto the gh4 micro Four Thirds side sensor right Mm-hmm. And so you're going to get a reduced crop factor, and this is going to, what, super 35 millimeter, So like yeah. APS-C size-esque. Roughly, probably, yeah. Yeah, like 1.5 or so. So that's a benefit. Then the focusing on this is probably still absent for Canon lenses, so that's a, yeah. a minus. But you're going to get more shallow depth of feel out of your lenses than you would if you were using my... Adapter, or if you're just bringing them straight into the camera without any adapt photo reducer or whatever, right? Right. So then, <laughs> what? I, I, I was going somewhere with you that. Could... I totally lost my train of thought. But basically. <laughs> I guess it's 650 man. It's 650 I already paid $500 for this dang thing, and I only use it like every once in a while. Uh, it, you're right. Rent it. Rent it. D- maybe buy it. I don't know. Um, I Now that I'm talking about it, I say it out loud, and I'm like, wait a minute. That's kind of sexy. Uh, all the things I just said were very positive. Uh, do I want to go ahead and just pull the trigger on that? Wait a minute. It's $650. Dang it. Dang it.
1: Yep. Uh, but it 's one of those things I want to rent and try out with a few of my buddies' lenses and uh see just just to see if it 's something I could really see myself using i 'm not even sure I would even ever buy it but Uh, just to try it out so that maybe if I've got a specific case or a client or something like that, especially if I'm trying to do some low light, because let's face it, uh, the GH4 or GH3 is not a, you know, a 7s So for, um, for some low light stuff, having those extra stops and the big cannon glass and whatnot can be super helpful. So it's just one of those things that I've got my eye on for uh, renting and trying out once I see it hit the shelves.
0: Now I ran out right away when uh, this version came out a while ago and bought it. And I can count on two hands the number of times I've actually needed to use it. I've, I've shoved it in a few times just because I'm like, well, I paid for this. I should definitely get it into the shoot, you know. But it doesn't get used <laughs> nearly as much as I thought it would. Now I see mm-hmm. all these shots, and every time Metabones comes out with a new adapter, people are like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. If you don't have one of these, obviously you you don't know what you're doing. You know, it's like, uh, man, really? Do I have to spend more money on another adapter? (laughs) Is this really going to make my workflow that much better? And people have asked me before, you know, why haven't you just pulled out of the Canon camp? And it's because of stuff like this. You know, I've gotten used (laughs) to working with Canon lenses on Canon bodies and the GH4 with the micro four thirds lenses, the Olympus and the Panasonic lenses I use on a GH4 body that when I throw something in like this, it looks good. Don't get me wrong. This is The Metabones adapter it does a great job. It gives you a couple of stops, uh, extra light into your GH4. Allows you to shoot it in darker situations. And it, I like the reduction in uh, focal length for the, the lenses I'm using. But when is it practical? When do you need it? Well... I already yeah. have a couple of Voigtlander 0.95 lenses, so when I need really shallow depth of field, I go for those. You know, when I need more light, I can go for those. Uh, when I want to put Canon lenses on, I'll just grab my 5D Mark III and shoot with that because... It works natively. I can half-press, get autofocus. I don't have to worry about, like, trying to manual focus on there. And, you know, I don't get weird errors every once in a while with this. Now, I did update the firmware on this just recently because I wasn't paying attention to firmware release dates, and the metabones adapter has stopped crashing my GH4 altogether with the latest firmware <laughs> update. So
1: that <laughs> well, this is on me. But, I mean... Before we jump over to your pick, let me propose this to you because why I look at things like this is, one... Um, not just so much shallow depth of field, because I don't think that you need to uh, crush the depth of field to tell a story. Uh, Mostly what I'm looking for is more light, so I can run the ISO lower, because it's not an A7S. And then the other thing, big thing is, too, is wide. It's hard to get wide, and a lot of uh, great cinematic shots that I look up to are shot very wide. So here you're the able to seven to, to throw fourteen, a my out. friend. The seven but to fourteen. Yeah, just like we talked about, what was it, last week where the uh they came out with that micro four thirds that was um was it 2.8? What was it at? Yeah, the Olympus seven to, uh, 7 to 14 millimeter F2.8, so that's a 14-28 yeah. to 28 equivalent. F2.8
0: now, and I got it corrected on this, um, and I'll, I'll go ahead and put this out there just so that I've made the correction in the show. Uh, <laughs> F2.8 is not F2.8 as far as depth of field goes for a uh, GH4 body because micro four-thirds, the focal right. distance is different. So it's more like F5.6 for your focal depth. Um, your... Right. Uh, Your light, the amount of light that comes into the camera is still F2.8. F2.8 is F2.8 as far as light is concerned going into the camera Mm -hmm. itself. So keep that in mind. Um, When I say, yeah, it's an F2.8 across the board, well, yeah, it is. But it's F5.6 if you're talking about the depth of field that you're getting in a out of it, but you're getting F28 as far as light is concerned. So there's right. your correction there. But <laughs> basically the uh I use the Panasonic F four uh seven to fourteen and that's freaking wide. That's wider than most lenses I have in my Canon kit. The Olympus seven to fourteen, you're uh what is that? Uh I think it's thirteen hundred dollars, twelve hundred dollars. So if you're paying mm-hmm. six fifty to get wide you're halfway there to yeah. buying an actual lens that you can use for everything, <laughs> and you can get the uh, the f4, the uh, uh, seven to fourteen yep. for like six hundred dollars. So you could actually buy that for fifty dollars
1: less than you can buy this adapter. You know. <laughs> things things to consider. Well, do you have a pick of the week? Um, no, I don't have anything. No. Um, all right, fair enough. <laughs> I am
0: a, my studio is a mess. I've been out on a couple of shoots. I've been dinking and around you're about with this thing to faint from uh, heat stroke. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm sweating like a f- fat man here. It's, I, it I don't even <laughs> normally I don't even wear these like goofy thin shirts. I've got like look at this chest mm-hmm. hair sticking out and stuff. What is that? <laughs> uh, it's because it's so hot that like I was sweating mm-hmm. out my regular shirt because I wear two layers normally.
1: So, uh, that's enough of DJ fashion.
0: <laughs> where can we find you on the internet Devin?
1: uh impulse TV where um i'm finishing up uh shooting uh some reviews of the loggers lunchbox and opinions on that as well as um a few other uh stupid little kickstarter things and indiegogo things that i am stupid enough to buy hey as long as they
0: show up you're not stupid because <laughs> you the got the product step. yep <laughs> on that note, guys, you can find this podcast on iTunes, right. on SoundCloud, as well as following Devin and I on Twitter, or you can also subscribe, like the Facebook page. Make sure you go to iTunes and write a review, guys, because there's only like two reviews up. It'd be nice to have some more <laughs> positive reviews saying, hey, we appreciate what you're doing. Anyway, on that note, swing over to DSLRFilmNoob.com for more information on these articles. Check the show notes for all the stuff we've talked about today, and we will see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob.